Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. We're talking about David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and the Waco siege that resulted in a Texas apocalypse. From press accounts, I knew that there was a group of religious people who were being popularly described in the media as a cult that were holed up in a compound in Waco, Texas, surrounded by federal law enforcement officials. And one day, the Waco compound was on fire. I was stunned. I had no idea that something like that would happen. At the time, I simply accepted what the media was saying. I didn't have any reason to suspect it was wrong. More than 10 years later, I did some research into the subject, and I started to find problems with the story as presented by the media and the government. As this year's anniversary approached, I dug back into the story and I was shocked by what I found. In today's episode, we'll talk about the story of David Koresh and the competing claims about what happened at the Waco siege. Next week, we'll go into detective mode and start sifting the evidence to try to figure out who's telling the truth and who's lying. You're listening to episode 97 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the evidence concerning what happened at the 1993 siege of the Branch Davidians at Waco, Texas. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On April 19, 1993, 26 years ago, federal law enforcement authorities stormed a religious commune outside Waco, Texas. The commune was run by a group known as the Branch Davidians, and it was led by David Koresh. The attack resulted in the deaths of more than 70 people, including many children. In the aftermath of this horrible event, a series of government investigations followed. But the results of these investigations have been challenged, with allegations of severe misconduct by high government officials, cover-up, and conspiracy. What's the truth about the Waco siege? Was the attack necessary? Could the deaths have been avoided? And who was responsible? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Now, Jimmy, we want to begin again by this episode by issuing a caution. What do we need to say? This episode will be very compelling, but it may not be for all listeners. As always, we're going to keep things general. We try to avoid gory details, but we will be covering facts that are disturbing both about the Davidians and what federal law enforcement did at the time. Consequently, listeners should be advised, especially parents making decisions for their families. So last episode, we looked at the basic facts about the Davidians and what federal agents did. What are the theories we'll be examining in this episode? From the faith perspective, we'll be looking at Davidian theology and how it compares to the Bible. From the reason perspective, we'll be looking at whether the charges against the Davidians that led to the siege were true, who was to blame for the tragic end of the siege, who was shooting during the final assault, why the Davidians didn't just come out before the fire started, and who started the fire. We'll also be looking at what happened after the final assault and how likely such events are to occur in the future. All right. So what can we say about the Waco siege from the faith perspective? Were the Branch Davidians a cult? 
I don't use the term cult as a way of referring to some religious groups who are considered cults versus others who are not considered cults. Neither does the Catholic Church. You won't find church documents referring to some groups as cults, but not others. When used that way, the term has no objective meaning. It's just an insult term that doesn't add anything substantive to the discussion. It adds heat rather than light. If you want to say a group has false beliefs, say that. If you want to say a group is too controlling, say that. Make whatever criticism of a group you want, but make them in a straightforward way and argue your views on the merits. But don't label a group with a scary sounding term that has no objective meaning and really just means religious group I don't like. The Branch Davidians were right to criticize uh, government and press accounts that continually labeled them as a cult as a way of vilifying them rather than actually making a case against them. And, you know, think about the golden rule. If you don't want people saying in your cult when they don't like your religious group, then follow the golden rule and don't say it about other people that you don't like. Okay, so then let's talk about David Koresh's beliefs about himself. What did he think his role was in God's plan? As we mentioned in the last episode, he didn't believe he was Jesus Christ. However, he did see himself as a prophetic figure who had several roles. First, he was a prophet. He also was a modern-day equivalent of Cyrus the Great, who restored the kingdom of Israel. That's why he legally changed his name to Koresh, the Hebrew word for Cyrus. And he also thought that he was supposed to restore the Davidic kingdom, so he took the name David. He thought he was the lamb from uh, Revelation who opens the seven seals of the great scroll, and he thought he was the seventh angel who blows the seventh trumpet in Revelation. What should we make of these claims from the faith perspective? From the perspective of Catholic faith, he wasn't any of the things he thought. He was misled by his own personal interpretation of various Bible passages. For example, his belief that he was the lamb from Revelation was false and really obviously so. For 2000 years, it's been obvious to Christians the world over who the lamb is. Uh, You know, here's how John introduces the lamb in Revelation 5 when he sees God's heavenly throne. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This is noteworthy because normally in the ancient world, a scroll was only written on one side, not both. The back of a scroll was kind of scratchier, so you didn't tend to use it. There's even a special name for a scroll that's written on both sides. It's called an epistograph. Also, scrolls were normally sealed with only a single seal, not seven. So God, sitting on his throne, is holding a scroll that has a great deal to say because it's written on both sides, but it's also very tightly sealed because it's got seven seals on it. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now someone has been found who can open the scroll, and we're told it's the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
So instead of a lion, we actually see a lamb standing as though it had been slain, paradoxically. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So the Lamb ransomed people for God from every nation of men, and he did so by his own blood back when he was slain. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all therein saying to him who sits upon the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So every creature in heaven and earth worships God and the lamb alongside him. Now, let's put all that together. The one worthy to open the scroll God is holding is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that is, the tribe Christ would come from. He's the Root of David, bearing in mind that the shoot from the stump of David's father Jesse is a key messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. He's depicted as a lamb, and in John's Gospel, Jesus is introduced with the phrase, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This lamb has been slain, but is nevertheless standing, indicating a death and resurrection. This lamb has taken away the sin of the world by redeeming men from all over the world by his own blood, just like Jesus did on the cross. And all creatures in heaven and earth worship the lamb alongside God, just like they do Jesus. So it's not really hard to see who the lamb in Revelation is. It's obvious to everyone, even non-Christian scholars, that the lamb is Jesus not David Koresh. So how could David Koresh think it was him? Among other things, he was using a set of really bad interpretive principles. Uh, the study of how to interpret a text is known as exegesis. And one of the key rules of exegesis is that you need to read a document in its original context to figure out what it means. That is, you need to look at the time place, and culture it was written in. You need to look at other relevant literature from this period, and you need to ask how the original author and his audience would have understood what was being said. But the opposite of good exegesis is what Koresh was doing. Instead of interpreting Revelation in its original context, he detached it from that context and read it through what we could call an egocentric lens. And I don't mean arrogant by that. I just mean it's about him. He assumed that Revelation was talking about things that would happen in his own location, Waco, Texas. He assumed it was talking about things that would happen in his own time, the 1990s. And he assumed that he was a key figure in the book itself, serving as both the Lamb and the Seventh Angel. Now, Koresh went to an extreme with egocentric or I-centered exegesis. You know, anytime a person concludes that he's a key figure in biblical prophecy, he's almost certainly wrong. The odds of actually being a key figure 
in biblical prophecy are vanishingly small. But many people use a milder version of egocentric exegesis and assume that prophecies are about to be fulfilled in their own day and in their own countries. This is a common phenomenon in history, and it doesn't have a good track record. The safe way to exegete a biblical text is to take yourself, your country, and your time out of it and read the Bible in terms of its own time, place, and culture. But a lot of people make the mistake of trying to read the Bible in terms of themselves in their own times. Koresh just did it to an extreme. And it's very common with the book of Revelation, especially. Yes, especially. So in addition to his prophetic ideas, David Koresh demanded that everyone in Mount Carmel live continently except him. He took multiple common law wives from the community, including some who were in their teens. What does the faith perspective say about that? Well, there's nothing wrong with continence. That's practiced in monasteries all over the world. So there's no intrinsic problem if the Davidians wanted to voluntarily practice continence. On the other hand, telling them that God requires this of them is problematic. So is the idea that everyone in the commune needs to practice continence except the leader. That's really problematic. I mean, if you're holding continence up as an ideal for your group, the leader needs to follow it also. Koresh claimed that he needed not to follow the practice because he needed to father 24 children to be the 24 elders of Revelation. And that's another incorrect interpretation of the book. Along, And, and you'll notice that it's another egocentric one. He needs to be the one doing the fathering, not other men. When it comes to what he personally did, there are multiple problems. One is that it involved polygamy, at least by common law marriage. Another is that he allegedly dissolved the marriages of the men in the community so he could take their wives. But that doesn't meet the biblical standard for marriage. So what he was doing objectively was committing adultery with women who were bound to other spouses. And he was having relations with young women who were not yet 18. Now, however unadvisable that is, natural law doesn't automatically prohibit marrying someone of reproductive age, and there have been younger ages for marriage in the past. But in our time and culture, Koresh opened himself to charges of statutory rape and bigamy. Statutory rape occurs when someone has relations with someone who is below the legal age of consent. Since they can't legally give consent, it's classified as rape, even though they may have actually been consenting. How much responsibility do the individual branch Davidians have for their situation? Well, they weren't responsible for the horrible deaths they suffered. Those were unforeseeable. In terms of what could have been foreseen, including the way Koresh misled them into relationships that were objectively disordered, we can't know others' hearts. That's between them and God. From what I've read of the survivors' writings, they seem to have sincerely believed that they were doing what God wanted. However, for whatever reason, and you know, the reasons would have varied from one person to another, they made really bad decisions and fell under the influence of a man who was not, in fact, a genuine prophet of God, and that resulted in a horrible tragedy. From a Catholic point of view, this illustrates the need for church authorities to carefully investigate reported revelations, as we discussed back in episode 84. What would have happened if this kind of thing had occurred with a group of Catholics? If a Catholic leading a commune like this started making the kinds of claims that Koresh was making or establishing the kind of living arrangements that Koresh did, the local bishop would have immediately issued a warning to the faithful that the revelations were not genuine and that they should stay away. And that's actually not 
that different than what the Seventh-day Adventist authorities did when the Davidians first started, long before Koresh's time. And yet that didn't stop this situation from happening. You know, ecclesiastical authorities can only do so much. They can warn people, but they can't guarantee that people will listen to the warning. So before we move on to the reason perspective, I, I do want to take a moment, a very important moment, to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Nathan A., Tom G., Dorian K., Matthew W., and Sam R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. All right, so let's get back to our discussion. What can we say about the Waco siege from the reason perspective? What about the charges against them that led to the incident? Well, let's review the allegations that law enforcement entertained against the group. They include drug trafficking, Koresh's commission of bigamy and statutory rape, stockpiling illegal weapons for some violent purpose, murdering four ATF agents and wounding 16 others during the initial February 28th raid, and physical child abuse, not sexual. All right. So were the Davidians guilty of drug trafficking? No. Despite the ATF's early attempts to argue that they might be running a meth lab, they weren't. And so this charge was quietly retired. Also, drug trafficking was beyond the ATF's purview, so it shouldn't have figured into their investigation at all. The charge was only introduced to help it make them sound like they were a lawless and potentially violent group so they could get a warrant. All right. So then what about the charges of bigamy or statutory rape? Koresh did have multiple common law marriages, and these did involve girls in their teens, so he was in some legal jeopardy for those actions. But they aren't within the purview of either the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms or the FBI. They're matters of state law, not federal law, so it would have been up to the Texas authorities to prosecute them. And the Texas authorities looked into the matter and concluded no one was being forced to do anything against their will, and they didn't have enough to make a case stick in court. So were the Davidians guilty of stockpiling illegal weapons for a violent purpose? No, they weren't stockpiling, but stocking guns. That is, they were putting them in inventory or stock for sale at gun shows so they could make money. They also retrofitted some weapons and then were delinquent in filing the needed paperwork and paying the associated fees. But they weren't doing any of that with violent intent. They were trying to make money to support their commune. So and then were they guilty of murdering four ATF agents and wounding 16 others in the initial raid? There's no doubt that four ATF agents died and that 16 others were wounded on February 28th, but that doesn't mean the Davidians did anything illegal because you can defend yourself against excessive force. In fact, you can def lawfully defend yourself against excessive force when it's being used by a law enforcement officer. According to the Texas Penal Code, the use of force to resist an arrest or search is justified if before the actor offers any resistance, the peace officer uses or attempts to use greater force than necessary to make the arrest or search, and when and to the degree the actor reasonably believes the force is immediately necessary to protect himself against the peace officer's use or attempted use of greater than necessary force. So we have to look at the situation of the original raid on February 28th. Did the ATF agents use excessive force before the Davidians offered any resistance? Now, bear in mind, 
that the warrant they had was not a no-knock warrant. They were not legally allowed to do a dynamic entry. They were required to knock on the door of Mount Carmel and serve Koresh with the warrant. Instead, their plan was to sneak up on the property, knock down the door with a battering ram, and pour dozens of agents in, taking everyone by surprise. But that didn't work because they had lost the element of surprise and didn't call off the raid, even though their orders said to. So when an unarmed Koresh went out to talk to them, instead, police came charging towards him, pointing their guns at him, yelling, police, search warrant, get down. And he shut the door for his own protection. Already, we are looking at an excessive force situation, creating legal cover for the Davidians defending themselves. So at this point, someone started firing, and the question is who? According to the ATF, the Davidians started firing out through the closed door, and they returned fire. But according to the Davidians, the ATF started firing in through the closed door. So who's telling the truth? This should be a simple matter to figure out, because we should be able to examine the door and see which way the bullet holes go, in or out. And the Davidians asked the government to do exactly this. But guess what? The door vanished while in law enforcement's hands, so it can't be examined. So did the videotape the ATF took of the incident. And so did several pages from the ATF's log of the raid. Also, there's the fact this was a metal door. And if I were on the inside standing just a few feet from it, there is no way I would fire through a metal door. The chances of a ricochet hurting me or someone else would be too high. So this is very bad for the ATF's case. It looks like the ATF lied about this. It looks like they then engaged in a cover-up and obstruction of justice to hide the fact that they shot first and the Davidians were entirely within their rights to defend themselves against the ATF's reckless and excessive force. And that's exactly what a Texas jury concluded when this was all over. David Thibodeau writes, At the close of the trial, Judge Smith gave the jury 67 pages of instructions on how to render a verdict most of them favoring the prosecution. However, he did allow an important instruction offered by the defense. Quote, If a defendant was not an aggressor and had reasonable grounds to believe he was in imminent danger of death or serious bodily harm from which he could save himself only by using deadly force against his assailants, he had the right to employ deadly force in order to defend himself. End quote. The jury was a mixed bag, and though I searched the faces long and hard, I didn't quite know what to make of it. Among the eight men and four women were housewives, school teachers, civil servants, and a retired banker. When they left the courtroom to deliberate on the verdict, I felt my friends were likely damned. But we were all surprised. Four days later, the jury found all 11 defendants not guilty on the murder and conspiracy charges. So you could argue that, that the Davidians shouldn't have shot back, that they acted rashly and it would have been better for them to hold their fire, but they weren't guilty of murder. And it looks really bad for the ATF when the key evidence, the door, the videotapes, the log entries all vanish from the ATF's evidence locker. That's just damning evidence of a cover up and obstruction of justice. The last major charge against them during the siege was child abuse. What about that one? This was one where, again, the ATF had no business, including it in its investigation leading to the February 28th raid, as the 
Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms is not a child protective service. Again, this was a matter for the Texas officials to deal with. And the Texas officials had looked into the situation and found that the children were all fine and closed the case on it. Uh, To repeat what we said last episode from David Thibodeau's book. The Child Protective Services investigation was formally closed on April 30th, 1992. None of the allegations could be verified, the official report stated. The children denied being abused in any way by adults in the compound. They denied any knowledge of other children being abused. The adults consistently denied participation in or knowledge of any abuse to children. Examinations of children produced no indication of current or previous injuries. Neither was this a matter for the FBI, although it played a crucial role in Janet Reno's thought process in approving the April 19, 1993 assault that ended the siege. When she was state attorney in Florida, Reno was famous for prosecuting child abuse cases. So her underlings used that to convince her. Thibodeau writes, While Reno wavered, some as yet unidentified person in the FBI chain of command told her that the bugs they'd secretly smuggled into Mount Carmel revealed that David was, quote, beating babies. You mean really mean babies, Reno queried? Yes, the answer came. He's slapping babies around. The FBI was well aware that with Reno's background in prosecuting child abuse cases, this charge was a hot button. On the evening of April 19, Hours after our tragedy, Reno would appear on talk shows and state that the FBI had hard intelligence that children were being beaten. It was bunk. Two days later, the FBI denied Reno's claims, dropping her in the soup. Quote, we did not tell the attorney general there was evidence of abuse during the siege, end quote, an agency spokesman declared. We passed on the 1992 reports from last year. That is, the FBI gave the attorney general a copy of the report of the intense investigation carried out in early 1992 by the Texas Department of Child Protective Services, which had been terminated for lack of evidence. FBI Director William Sessions himself later admitted that the Bureau had no contemporaneous evidence of such abuse. In fact, Child Protective Services officials who immediately examined the kids who came out during the siege uncovered no evidence of child abuse. They found the children to be surprisingly healthy, happy, well-adjusted, well-educated, and only wanted to return as soon as they could to their friends and relatives in the compound. In the March 8th issue of the New York Times, Texas correspondent Sam Howe Verhovic wrote that none of these children show any signs of physical abuse. So the child abuse charge was false, but because Reno was passionate on the subject, her underlings apparently lied to her, and she then used the child abuse issue to sell President Clinton on the final assault that killed more than 70 people. One of the things President Clinton and other government officials claimed after the assault was that none of the law enforcement officials fired even a single shot, but that the Davidians did a lot of shooting at them. What can we say about that? David Thibodeau says that while he was in the commune during the final assault, he didn't see or hear any of the Davidians firing weapons. However, he can't rule out that in places he couldn't see or hear, some of them may have started shooting back in self-defense once the tanks started tearing holes in their building and tear gas was flooding in and the FBI was firing canisters through the windows, one of which even like hit a guy in the head. Mm. 
But there has been a major challenge mounted to the idea that the FBI didn't fire any shots. This is explored in a trio of documentaries by Michael McNulty. They're titled Waco, The Rules of Engagement, Waco, A New Revelation, and The Fleer Project. In theory, the FBI shouldn't have had to do any shooting because all their agents were supposed to be in armored tanks that bullets would just bounce off of. But even though the government later denied that any agents fired on the Davidians, they said on the day that they would fire. David Thibodeau reports, All this time the speakers are blaring, Do not shoot at us or we will shoot at you. The siege is over. This is not an assault. So on the day of the raid, the FBI was telling the Davidians that they would shoot if fired upon, and they claimed the Davidians fired on them, meaning that they would have shot back if they did what they said they would do. And this kind of gives the lie to the idea that all of their agents were protected inside tanks. I mean, some, of must, some must have been outside and exposed, or there would be no reason for them to make this threat. Also, it turns out that the FBI had a plane circling the compound, and it was recording the situation using forward-looking infrared or a FLIR camera. That's the same technology that the Navy used to take footage of the UFOs that we discussed in episodes 41 and 70. It records images in infrared light so hot spots look white and cool spots look dark. When you examine the FLIR footage of the final assault, it looks like, in addition to the tanks, there also were agents running around on the ground. And there are what look like white muzzle flashes coming from the agents directing their fire into the commune. The documentary makers consulted with Dr. Edward Allard, a physicist who helped develop FLIR technology and who served as the director of the Defense Department's night vision laboratory and who held several patents on FLIR and night vision technology. So to put it simply, he was one of the top experts on this tech. And here's an excerpt of Dr. Allard analyzing part of the FLIR footage where a tank approaches the back of the building where people in front could not see it. If you look carefully, what you will see is the exhaust plume of the tank. You'll see the plume twice when the operator steps on the gas. There it is again. And now what you will see is a short burst there. That short burst, uh, we, we feel, is a, is a gunshot. The next view is a view in slow motion. As the vehicle approaches, we see the plume from the engine. And we have the gunshot. Now, freeze it there, please. You can see now the outline of the tank. You can clearly see the outline of the tank. There's the blade. There's the blade in front of the tank. There's the, the opposite side of the tank. This hot area back here is the, uh, the engine, the deck area. And... Uh, it appears that the, the shot that we're looking at is coming off the rear deck area of the tank. This particular one, the burst lasted about one second. And we will see shots similar to this throughout the tape, and nothing else appears with the type of uh, thermal signature that we get of gunshots. And here he is describing another clip, again, in the back of the building, away from public view. 
two individuals on the ground fire automatic weapons into the commune. What we have here is a, a tank infantry type of an operation. As the tank moves forward, two men have dropped out of the escape hatch. Uh, they roll over, and as they roll over, they open up with automatic gunfire. We've measured the actual time of the individual flashes, and they occur at a fraction of a second, in some cases, a thirtieth of a second. There is absolutely nothing in nature that can cause thermal flashes to occur in a thirtieth of a second. Dr. Allard provides additional analysis of other clips coming to the same conclusions. If you want to see them for yourself, watch Waco, The Rules of Engagement, and Waco, A New Revelation. We'll have links in the show notes. Another independent analysis was done for the CBS News program 60 Minutes by the Infrospection Institute, which also professionally analyzed images of this nature, and they came to the same conclusion. There were agents on the ground firing into the commune. Their expert said... It was obvious to me on several occasions that there was gunfire or automatic weapon discharge seemingly fired toward the building from the outer perimeter. Infrospection also discovered something else. There were occasions on the video that seemed to appear as though people were entering, exiting, or being run over by an armored vehicle. But CBS didn't broadcast this report, and Infrospection itself got cold feet, stating in a letter... Due to the potentially sensitive nature of this material and the resulting negative repercussions to introspection, we are choosing to decline any further comments surrounding this taped incident and our subsequent professional opinions regarding its viewing. So the situation was getting too hot for introspection and they declined to comment further. How did the government respond to the experts' claims that the FLIR footage revealed agents firing into the building? Well, the government did what you would expect it to do. It got other people to review the footage, and surprise, they came to different conclusions. Some argued that what look like muzzle flashes on the FLIR footage are actually brief reflections of sunlight bouncing off shiny surfaces, even though sunlight is visible light and won't produce infrared flashes. Mm -hmm. They even ran tests to try to reproduce the effects. But the claim is problematic for multiple reasons. Uh, The documentary makers, therefore, did their own tests and recorded the results in a short documentary called The FLIR Project. I've watched it, and from what I can tell, the, the documentary makers just demolish the government's case. I should say that I'm, you know, very well aware that people sometimes see what they expect to see in grainy footage. You know, I'm totally unimpressed by claims people make about fuzzy UFO footage or fuzzy Bigfoot photos or fuzzy structures on the moon or whatever. I'm always on my guard against pareidolia, which is the tendency of the mind to impose patterns on random imagery. But I've reviewed the FLIR footage, and this is not in the same category. It really looks like you have agents in the back of the compound running around outside of the tanks and firing into the commune. And you can watch all three documentaries for yourself and evaluate the images and see what you think. Why would agents shoot into the commune? Some have argued that this was a deliberate hit, that federal agents, possibly with the aid of the military, were there to kill the Davidians. But 
This is harder to argue. It's more natural to assume that they're firing defensively and then lied about it afterwards to cover their butts. Dr. Allard mentions two agents apparently putting down covering fire, you know, which is what you do when you need to do something, but you don't want people shooting at you. You lay down covering fire. And in another clip, it really does look like two agents are retreating from the commune and shooting behind them to cover themselves as they retreat. Also, if people in the compound were defending themselves, like the government claimed, well, they could be shooting back, you know, so there are any number of reasons why they might want to be shooting. Let's go back a moment and look at something the Infrospection Report said, that there appeared to be times when it looked like people were being run over by the tank in the rear of the building. Do we know anything more about that? Yes. First, here is an inside account from David Thibodeau, who describes what he personally saw immediately after the fire broke out. Suddenly, someone yells, fire! Frantically, I look around for an escape route. The gym beyond the chapel's destroyed. A huge timber beam blocks my way. Working on gut instinct, crawling on hands and knees, I back up to the stairway leading to the overhead catwalk. On the upper level, there's debris everywhere as if the building's been hit by an aerial bomb. Trying not to get cut by the shattered glass, I inch along the catwalk that crosses the length of the chapel ceiling, hoping to find a way to reach the children. The opening at the end of the catwalk is covered by a blanket. When I tentatively lift its edge, a blast of smoke staggers me. Gingerly, I poke my head out. A fireball shoots down the corridor before my eyes, a red and yellow flash whose heat scorches my cheeks and deafens my ears with its roaring. Since I can't go forward, I have to retreat down the catwalk to the stairs. When I get to the lower level, I find that the chapel's on fire. Another fireball from the gym area races across the ceiling. The tank has knocked a hole in the wall at the edge of the stage, and I see people huddled there, trying to get away from the thick smoke. The air's heat causes me to remove my black leather jacket. It's covered with white spots from the gas. My gas mask's filter has run out. Feeling suffocated, I tear it off. Ray Friesen, an elderly Canadian, says he can't take it anymore. He's going to jump out the window. I warn him they might shoot us, and he hesitates. Derek Lovelock, a black man from Britain, tells us he saw the women and kids in the concrete storage room. When Jimmy Riddle, a 32-year-old Southerner, goes out the back door to the cafeteria, a tank rolls over the top of him, ripping off the right side of his torso. Stephen Henry, another young black man from Britain, is also run down, his left leg sheared off at the hip. So David Thibodeau reports personally seeing a tank roll over two men, Jimmy Riddle, who has the right side of his torso ripped off, and Stephen Henry, whose left leg is sheared off at the hip. Do the autopsies support that? Yes. Jimmy Riddle did have his right arm and a large circular portion of his right torso ripped off, and Stephen Henry's left leg was sheared off at the hip. Do we have any other evidence that would confirm that a tank ran over these men? Yeah, it's on record that the tank that destroyed the back of the building had something go wrong with one of its treads, which jammed. And after this happened, visible light images show that there was a red object at its tread. And Jimmy Riddle was wearing a red shirt and a jacket with a red lining. Needless to say, he also had red blood. Because the tank's tread was malfunctioning, they had to bring in another tank to tow it away, and that meant people had to get out of the tank to hook them together. And this would provide the agents who got out reasons to lay down protective cover fire. All right, let's go for the main issue. How did the fire start? 
According to the government, the Davidians deliberately set it as a suicidal act. Here's President Clinton speaking the day after the assault. Yesterday's action ended in a horrible human tragedy. Mr. Koresh's response to the demands for his surrender by federal agents was to destroy himself and murder the children who were his captives, as well as all the other people who were there who did not survive. He killed those he controlled, and he bears ultimate responsibility for the carnage that ensued. Some religious fanatics murdered themselves. And, and uh, I, I regret what happened. They made the decision to immolate themselves, and I regret it terribly, and I feel awful about the children. So that's the official government line. The Davidians set the fire and killed themselves. What evidence does the government have for this? The government suggests that they, or some of them, had a suicide pact, perhaps so that they could be martyrs for their religious beliefs and bring on the end of the world. But the government had audio and video bugs in the commune, and they don't have any recordings of them making such a suicide pact. The surviving Davidians also uniformly deny that there was any such pact. In fact, they were overjoyed that David Koresh was writing his Seven Seals documents so they could all peacefully surrender and get out of the siege conditions, where, among other things, the FBI had been using psychological warfare tactics on them by playing loud noises and shining bright lights on them all night. They were looking forward to getting out not plotting suicide. Do the government tapes reveal them doing anything to set the fire once the final assault was underway? Well, you will find some scattered quotations from the listening devices that can be read to suggest that at least some Davidians were pouring out fuel they had inside the commune. They had been using this fuel with Coleman lanterns to provide light for themselves and with portable heaters they used to keep warm at night since the FBI had cut off their electricity. They also used it to provide electricity with an emergency generator so that they could run the computer needed to do the word processing for the Seven Seals document. But there are some problems. For one, not all of the quotations the government points to really suggest that they're trying to set a fire. Some of the discussions, which occur around 6 a.m. on the day of the assault, have people referring to pouring something, but it isn't clear what they're talking about. It could be water. For example, since the Davidians didn't have gas masks that would fit the children, they soaked cloths in water to use as improvised air, improvised air filters for the children. So they could have been pouring water into containers they could take around the compound so it would be handy when it was needed. Also, some of the recordings involve the Davidians discussing fuel, but their later statements indicate that the fuel they had, they were moving away from where it was stored to keep it from being run over by tanks or otherwise set off. So and, you know, then in the process of moving the fuel, some of it got spilled accidentally. Then there's the fact that fire is not a great way to kill yourself, especially when you have guns available. And there are indications from the autopsies, such as gunshot wounds to the roof of the mouth, that some of the Davidians did kill themselves. But this isn't proof of a prearranged suicide pact. It's equally consistent with the idea of trapped people in a burning building ending their suffering rather than being burned alive. As evidence for suicidal intent, some have wondered if this can be found in the fact that so few Davidians came out of the building. Some people have wondered, why didn't they just come out? To quote the FBI negotiator Gary Nosner, who was no longer on the case at this point, but who watched what happened on television, 
As I watched, I wondered how the Davidians could see this as anything other than an assault. How on earth could mothers with children be expected to rush to safety toward armored vehicles when those same vehicles were punching holes into their home? An argument for inserting tear gas and letting it slowly do its work could perhaps be made. However, smashing holes in the compound constituted a dramatic escalation from the approved plan. And that's just what Nosner saw on television. Think about what was happening inside the commune. They were being tear gassed and had received three days worth of tear gas in just a few hours. Many were choking or immobilized by the gas, which not only hurt the lungs, but burned the skin. There were tanks demolishing parts of the structure, and some may have been trapped by falling parts of the structure. Many of the women had taken the children into a concrete supply room for shelter and were then trapped there when a tank drove up into the building and gassed them. And some had seen their compatriots ripped apart by the tanks that were crashing into the structure. There are also reports of agents outside the building shooting into it. And this was after weeks of intimidation and psychological warfare waged by the FBI, which effectively undermined any trust the Davidians would have had for the FBI's good intentions regarding them. This is not a scenario where you're likely to rush out unless you absolutely have to which is what happened when the fire started. David Thibodeau describes his own decision to exit the building. Now I'm down on my hands and knees praying, God, if I'm going to die, just make it quick. Just then, the wall of the stage catches fire, scorching the side of my face. The sharp smell of singed hair fills my nose, and I scream from the depths of my gut. Seeing Jamie and Derek run out of the hole in the wall at the edge of the stage, I follow, preferring a swift death by the agent's bullets to being roasted by fire. The FBI's actions, both over the past weeks and in the final assault, were so dramatic that Thibodeau feared that if he exited the building, he'd be shot. It was only the thought of burning to death that made him choose to leave. What's the best case you can make that the Davidians started the fire? Well, if they did it, it couldn't have been all of them. All of the Davidian survivors deny knowing of any suicide pact among the group's members. And if there had been such a pact keeping them in the building, it would have had to have been discussed widely in the group. You know, if you're going to get everybody to agree to it, you got to talk to everybody, in which case the FBI's bugs would have picked up the discussions and they didn't. In fact, had the bugs picked up any such discussions, they would have moved immediately before April 19th and before the Davidians could have firmed up a suicide plan. You know, if you hear them plotting suicide, you go in now. So if any of the Davidians did set the fire, it would have had to have been something only a few of them did as a last minute decision on the day of the final assault. If I were to argue for that, I would focus on the statements of two men. Rinos Avraham and Graham Craddock, who were among the nine survivors. Craddock denied any prior knowledge of a suicide plan or a plan to start a fire, but he later said that he saw someone spread fuel in the chapel to which another person objected, saying, don't do that. Then, or something like that, another person objected. Then he heard someone say something like, light the fire, and someone say, wait, wait, find out and someone say something like, don't light the fire. Avraham said he heard someone say, the fire has been lit, the fire has been lit. So let's look at what they said they remembered. Craddock did not claim to see anyone light a fire. He only thinks he heard people discussing whether or not to light a fire. 
But we need to consider alternatives because this was a very chaotic environment with lots of competing sounds. Also, human memory is subject to distortion and influence by what people are telling you happened, which can affect your memories of what happened and in what order. He thought he saw someone pouring fuel in the chapel, but we know that fuel was being moved around the commune to keep tanks from running over it, and we know that some of it was spilled in the process. So maybe that's what he saw. Maybe he saw someone accidentally spill fuel, and then someone says, wait, 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 you know, object, which he interpreted as objecting to deliberately pouring fuel when it was just an accident that was happening in front of him. The comment, wait, wait, find out, could refer to anything. It could be a request. I mean, it's obviously a request for confirmation of something, but we don't know what. And you could imagine almost anything. I mean, is it a request for confirmation that a particular person has been killed or that the FBI is using some tactic or the FBI has made some new offer or we've all been told to go to a particular location or maybe Koresh has said we're supposed to surrender? I mean, it could be anything that someone is asking for confirmation on. And the phrases light the fire or don't light the fire could be partial phrases that were part of longer statements that had a different meaning, or they could have been misheard or misremembered. Maybe people were discussing how they hoped a fire wouldn't be lit. And even if Craddock accurately heard people discussing whether or not to light a fire, the final thing he heard was someone saying not to light it, and he didn't see anybody light one. Avraham also didn't see anybody light a fire, though he thought he heard someone say the fire has been lit. But that could be misremembering of someone saying a fire has started or something like that. And don't forget how memories can be influenced by what people tell you happened afterward. In the 1950s, there was a researcher named Solomon Ash who did a series of studies on the ability of groups to influence the beliefs and opinions of others. What he discovered is now known as the Ash Effect, that if people are told something that their own eyes flatly contradict, like how long one line is compared to another line that are both visible, 50% of people will respond the way the others in the group did. So if, if the group is saying, oh, that, that's the longer line, half of everybody will go along with that. So with the government adamantly insisting that the Davidians had started the fire, you could see how it might influence Craddock and Avraham's memories of what they thought they heard others saying in the chaos of the final assault. So even this best argument, to me, seems somewhat inconclusive. If you were to make the case against the Davidians deliberately starting the fire, what would you say? First, I'd ask why the FBI's bugs didn't pick up people clearly planning the fire. You know, we have some ambiguous statements, but I haven't been able to find anything clear, any clear quotations of anybody discussing it or ordering this to be started. Uh, second, I'd want to know why none of the nine survivors saw anybody actually set a fire, although it's possible, you know, that none of them were present when it happened. Third, I'd point out that this place was a powder keg waiting to go off and that a fire easily could have started accidentally. To begin with, the tear gas that the FBI was filling the structure with was flammable. Here's a general description of the gas from Thibodeau. The cocktail favored by the feds to subdue us was a mixture of a white crystalline powdered chemical called orthochlorobenzomalonitrile, CS, in a solution of methylene chloride, a potent depressant of the human central nervous system. CS causes nausea, 
disorientation, dizziness, shortness of breath, tightness in the chest, burning of the skin, intense tearing, coughing, and vomiting. In January 1993, the United States and 130 other countries had signed the Chemical Weapons Convention banning the use of CS gas in warfare. Apparently, there is no prohibition on its use against American citizens. Also, this gas may make people unable to leave an area, another reason why some Davidians failed to leave the building. And it can kill you, especially if you're a child. According to official sources, for those exposed to the gas... The Army's Manual on Civil Disturbances states that, quote, excessive exposure to CS may make them incapable of vacating the area, end quote. The company that makes CS warns that when the gas burns, it gives off fumes that can kill. Benjamin C. Garrett, director of the Chemical and Biological Arms Control Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, explains that CS is even deadlier for kids because the smaller you are, the sooner you would feel the response. Federal Laboratories, which supplies CS to the FBI, warns in its manual, Under no circumstances should CS grenades, cartridges, or projectiles designed for use in riots be used in confined areas. A hazardous overdose could be created by the release of even one full-sized grenade in a closed room. But the CS powder used in the tear gas wasn't the only danger, because... Later I learned that the FBI Bradley tanks projected in excess of 400 explosive rocket rounds into our building, boosting the effect of the sprayed tear gas. Both methods of delivery use noxious CS gas, whereas the sprayed gas is suspended in non-toxic carbon dioxide. The CS in the rocket rounds is mixed at a concentration of one part in 10 with deadlier methylene chloride, a petroleum derivative. Methylene chloride is an eye, skin, and respiratory tract irritant. It's flammable when mixed with air and can become explosive in confined spaces. When it burns, it produces hydrogen chloride and the poisonous gas phosgene, which crippled many soldiers during World War I. So the CS gas that the FBI pumped into the compound was suspended in a flammable gas, and thus... By noon, the building is a tinderbox. A thick layer of methylene chloride dust deposited by the CS gas coats the walls, floors, and ceilings, mingling with kerosene and propane vapors from our spilled lanterns and crushed heaters. To make things worse, a brisk 30-knot Texas wind whips through the holes ripped in the building's sides and roof, the whole place is primed like a pot-bellied stove with its damper flung open. Remember, all those massive holes the FBI punched in the building let in the high winds of the day, increasing the odds of a fire starting. How might that fire have begun? Well, it could have been a spark from or heat from the bullets that the FLIR footage suggests the FBI was firing into the back of the building. Here's Dr. Edward Allard, the FLIR designer and expert, commenting on a flash that occurred just after one of the apparent bursts of gunfire directed into the back of the building. That flash was so bright that the operator of the FLIR thought it was so significant that he decided to fix his cursor in that area to uh, remind him or other people looking at the tape that there was a... Uh, very significant flash in the window. When we see it in slow motion and we see the flash, it appears to be a single flash, but it is not a single flash. It's actually a, two flashes. We got a primary flash and a secondary flash, 
and both of uh, these flashes uh, last about uh, one half second each. And they're, they're most likely uh, detonations inside the uh, building itself. Also, the FBI was projecting pyrotechnic devices into the building, like the more than 400 explosive rocket rounds they shot in to spray additional tear gas. Years later, after the documentary filmmakers found evidence that pyrotechnic rounds had been shot at the building, Janet Reno was forced to address this fact, and she didn't deny it. Here's what she said. I am very, very troubled by the information I received this week suggesting that pyrotechnic devices may have been used in the early morning hours on April the 19th, 1993 at Waco. At this time, all available indications are that the devices were not directed at the main wooden compound, were discharged several hours before the fire started, and were not the cause of the fire. I'm not embarrassed. I'm very, very upset. Note that she says the evidence at hand suggests that these were shot before the fire broke out and weren't directed at the wooden part of the building. However, a preliminary investigation of the devices in the evidence locker suggests that they did pass through the wooden structure. Also, other pyrotechnic devices that had been photographed at the time were now missing from the evidence locker. And the government also tossed in flashbang grenades. And as their name suggests, flashbangs both make a pyrotechnic flash and go bang. Uh, they do this by creating explosions that could have set off the fire. And then there's the matter of the time that the fire broke out. David Thibodeau writes, the government fire expert appointed to head up the investigation was Paul Gray, a member of the ATF's National Arson Response Team, whose wife worked in the ATF's Houston office, hardly an impartial investigator. Gray claimed that infrared tapes made by government surveillance planes showed a pattern of arson. According to the tapes, Gray declared, the fire broke out at 12.07.04 p.m. on the second floor. But independent witnesses who examined the tapes stated that the building burst into flames earlier at 11.59.16 a.m. in the gym at the back. It started as a tank backed out of the room. In fact, the tapes seem to show that the conflagration erupted in three places virtually simultaneously exactly where the tear gas spraying tanks had broken into Mount Carmel. And when the fire reached the area where we'd stored some propane, a pall of black smoke and orange and yellow flames spurted 200 feet into the air. That was the enormous explosion that occurred, killing most or all of the people left inside. So it seems to me that there is a very real possibility that the FBI set off the fire accidentally. What happened after the final assault ended and the siege was over? The FBI moved in and took control of the ruins of Mount Carmel. The government found no devices that could be used to show that the Davidians had set the fire and so no arson charges were filed against them. The FBI also improperly stored the bodies found in the rubble, causing them to deteriorate and lose forensic evidence that could have clarified what happened. And the FBI also ordered investigators to sift, wash, and bleach the evidence connected with the bodies, which further destroyed forensic evidence. The surviving Davidians were charged with various crimes. Uh, as we mentioned, they were acquitted of the murder and conspiracy charges against them. However, some were convicted of lesser offenses, including manslaughter. The appeals process followed, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled that there had been improper procedures at the trial and ordered that their sentences be reduced. Those who went to prison served their time, and all, were, all of them were released by 2007. 
there were allegations of cover-ups by the ATF, the FBI, and the Justice Department. And there's certainly evidence to suggest that, such as the missing pages from the FBI log on the February 28th raid, the various items, including the front door of Mount Carmel, that have gone missing from government evidence caches, and the withholding from the public of other evidence known to exist. There was also a huge controversy and a series of investigations followed, including a congressional investigation, a Justice Department investigation, and an ATF investigation. We'll have links to all of those in the further resources so you can read them for yourselves. And as covered in the documentary Waco, A New Revelation, some within the government and military have come forward making allegations that it wasn't just the FBI involved in the final assault. According to them, the Army's Combat Applications Group, otherwise known as Delta Force, was also involved. If that's true, its use in the siege would have had to have been authorized by President Clinton. And that's a dramatic charge that I haven't been able to get enough evidence on to form an opinion one way or the other. It could be true or it could just be false rumors. Finally, two years after the final siege, to the day, Timothy McVeigh bombed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City in retaliation for both Ruby Ridge and the Waco siege. We'll talk about both in future episodes. I want to make it clear up front that McVeigh was a monster, and no matter what the government did at Ruby Ridge or Waco, it doesn't justify his terrorist act in Oklahoma City. But that event is part of this overall tragic sequence of events. This has been an intense pair of episodes. Let's conclude them by asking the question, how likely is this kind of event to occur again? It's hard to tell. There's the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. As long as we live in a fallen world, government agents could be corrupted by paranoia and power and do something like this again. Some would point to government actions in the wake of 9-11 as unduly infringing on people's liberties. But I don't think we're likely to have something like this happen again soon. The government learned some lessons from the Waco disaster, and if anything similar happened now in the age of social media and highly polarized politics, it would be even worse for them. Federal agents killed dozens of American citizens, including innocent women and children, is not the kind of headline that any president of either party wants to have to deal with. So whatever misconduct occurs in the future, it's not likely to be as stark as this one was, at least not anytime soon. Also, there are good people working in the government. In his book, Stalling for Time, FBI negotiator Gary Nosner is very frank about the problems that existed at the time, but he also indicates that lessons were learned in the FBI and that people recognized how horrible this was and steps were taken to improve the overly aggressive internal culture that existed then. The two main guys who were heading the hostage rescue team and the special agent in charge, they managed to keep their jobs, but they were never promoted again. They were dead-ended as a result of their actions at Waco. Nosner also recounts how he and other FBI officials later handled an even longer siege, the 81-day siege in 1996 of the Montana Freeman, who we'll also be talking about in a future episode. And instead of imposing an artificial deadline and then moving in, they displayed much more patience. The negotiators were included in the decision-making process in a way they weren't at Waco, and they managed to bring the siege to a peaceful conclusion without anybody getting 
killed, or even hurt. And that's a positive note to close on. Okay, so Jimmy, what's your bottom line on David Koresh and the Waco Siege? Well, the Branch Davidians were an eccentric group that had a lot of problematic ideas from the perspective of Catholic faith, but they were also sincere people who were not guilty of the main allegations that led to this situation. The allegations that had a legal basis were Koresh's bigamy and having relations with teenagers, but those weren't matters for the ATF or the FBI. They belonged to local law enforcement. The ATF did not have adequate evidence to go after Koresh and the Davidians, and they misled a judge into getting a warrant. They should not have conducted their showtime raid in front of all the reporters. The evidence points to the ATF shooting first, as illustrated by the disappearance of the pages from their log and the Davidians' metal front door from their evidence locker and all the videotape of the incident. And as the courts later found, the Davidians did not murder ATF agents when they defended themselves against the ATF's excessive force. The FBI then foolishly failed to listen to its own negotiators who were making progress and getting people out. They should not have used psychological warfare tactics and done the intimidation measures to punish the Davidians that undermined the negotiators' ability to get even more people out. Koresh was working on the Seven Seals document, which he was in the process of composing, and they should have waited for the document to be finished. They should not have misled Janet Reno with false charges of child abuse, which they had no evidence of and which the existing evidence contradicted. Reno and Clinton should not have approved the reckless plan of tear gassing the commune, including all the women and children inside. The FBI should not have escalated the plan and pumped three days worth of tear gas into the building in just a few hours. While it is possible that a few individual Davidians may have touched off the fire at the end of the siege, it is also very possible that the FBI started it accidentally. In short, this was a horrible tragedy that never should have occurred. And let's pray for everybody involved or affected by it. Of course, definitely. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we give to the listeners who would like to learn more? Well, like last week, we'll have a link to David Thibodeau's book, Waco, A Survivor's Story. Also, Clive Doyle's book, A Journey to Waco. So those are both by people who were survivors of the final siege. We'll also have Gary Nosner's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, which includes both an account of the Waco siege and the much more successful siege of the Montana Freeman a few years later. We'll have a link to a miniseries on Amazon uh, that's based on David Thibodeau's book. I have not seen this miniseries yet, but I have read what Thibodeau said about it, and he apparently was very pleased with how respectful the miniseries makers were of what actually happened. We'll have a link to the documentary Waco Rules of Engagement, which is on Amazon Prime. Also, a link to the documentary Waco A New Revelation and the documentary The Fleer Project. We'll then have links to David Koresh, Dr. Edward Allard's courtroom testimony on Fleer footage, a link to an article on the Ash effect in psychology about how groups can influence people's memories or perceptions, also a link to C-SPAN coverage of the Waco hearings, and so you can watch hours of that if you want. Also, see the show notes for, from our previous episode for more resources. Excellent. All right. So uh, a great couple of uh, episodes, Jimmy, on this and very in-depth and uh, eye-opening for me, at least, and uh, hopefully for other listeners. 
So, Jimmy, we uh, as we always do, we want to have time for feedback from our listeners. So we have some mysterious feedback this week on our episode on the nemesis theory. And the uh, first feedback comes from Drew M. on Facebook, who wrote, Look what I found on the chalkboard this morning from our seven-year-old, the Death Star Turi. Yeah, and uh, we'll have a link to this. This is the second piece of fan art from children that we've had on the show. I love getting that stuff. So this is a chalkboard illustration of Nemesis, and it does say, indeed, the Death Star Turi around it, and it's really cute. Def is D-E-F. And uh, so we'll have a link to that also so you can see the fan art for yourself. We love getting that stuff. We're so so glad you, you folks are sending it in. Patrick Peters writes on YouTube, you two are a blessing. Jimmy's ability to teach with his narrative tone, if that makes sense, makes any episode extremely interesting. I'm just a soon-to-be theology grad student and in between jobs and therefore poor, haha, but I will definitely support when I'm able to. Thank you so much, Patrick. We really appreciate it. And we do need support uh, from patrons. We need to get the network to the break-even point so that we can keep making Mysterious World and all the other great StarQuest shows. And thank you for uh, your compliment. I know what you mean about the narrative stuff, I think, in terms of how can I structure this as a story. You know, even when we're talking about scientific concepts, I try to think, how can I, how can I make this a story that's easy for people to follow? Toby12347 on YouTube writes, Great show. I was initially very skeptical of Jimmy's disagreement with the relatively new classification conditions for planets. But after listening through the whole episode and dwelling on it for a bit, he's won me over. Awesome. That's great. And isn't it much more fun to live in a solar system with dozens of planets rather than just eight? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, So, Jimmy, do we have some mysterious headlines this week? Yeah, one is a video about six rare types of twins. Now, everybody's familiar with fraternal twins, where they share half the DNA, or identical twins, where they share 100% of the DNA, basically. But there are some rare types of twins. We've mentioned them briefly on the show before, but if you want to know about these rare types of twins, check out this video. Also, speaking of living things, we're going to have another link to living bricks. So forget transparent aluminum. The new hotness is living bricks. (laughs) Right. I'm definitely going to need to check that out and find out what that's about. As we wrap up things, we do want to appeal to the listeners and ask for your feedback. What are your theories about the Waco siege? After listening to everything Jimmy has had to say, and if you do any further uh, research of your own, let us know online what you think about what happened here and what ha- what's going on with the Branch Davidians and all that. We'd love to hear from you. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, leaving a comment there, or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is our monthly patrons episode, and it's going to be about the mystery of sleep. Ooh, uh, hopefully that one will be so compelling you won't be able to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and uh, another appeal, just to please share the podcast with your friends, write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and help us grow this community and reach more listeners. We'd love to uh, grow this audience. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida, 
at AaronV.com. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>